Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Daily Gospel Exegesis podcast. Our goal here is to help you understand the text of Scripture a bit better. We want to help you understand the literal sense of Scripture. What did it mean in its original context? So the reading you would hear at today's Mass is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. So here's the text. In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the lands of Iturea and Trachonitis, Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the pontificate of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went through the whole Jordan district, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the sayings of the prophet Isaiah. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare a way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled in. Every mountain and hill will be laid low. Winding ways will be straightened, and rough roads made smooth. And all mankind shall see the salvation of God. So that's our reading for today. It's a really interesting one. Luke here is giving us some historical information to set the scene uh, for John the Baptist's ministry. So let's start with the context. We're at the start of Luke chapter 3 here. We've already had Jesus' birth. In fact, we've had John the Baptist's birth as well in Luke chapter 1 and 2. And then we saw an incident involving Jesus at 12 years old. So that was the last time we saw Jesus. So now we get to the time of Jesus' own ministry when he's an adult. About 30 years have passed since he was born. In fact, Luke chapter 3 verse 23 actually says Jesus was about 30 years of age when he began his ministry. That's actually in the New Testament. So Jesus is around 30 years of age now. Now Luke is writing to Gentiles. So one of the things Luke wants to do is to make sure that his readers, his Gentile readers, are clear on when these events happen and how they relate to world history, because many of his readers would be in the Roman Empire, and they'd be interested to know under what emperor did these things happen and what does it mean for them. So Luke here is going to situate the story of Jesus in world history. And Luke here, as many New Testament scholars have recognised, is a master historian. He's going to set the scene politically and historically, and he's very precise with his details. Uh, There's some quotes, actually. So William Ramsey, who investigated the Gospel of Luke, he was actually quite sceptical about the New Testament, but he investigated uh, Luke and the Book of Acts, which Luke wrote as well. And he came to the conclusion that Luke is a historian of the first rank. So Luke is really going out of his way to make sure he gets the, the details right, which is very useful for us in terms of dating things. So he's then going to move on to talking about the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, first here, Luke is going to list several historical figures because, again, he wants his readers to understand the historical context of his gospel. And also he wants to stress that these are real historical events. So let's get into it. Verse 1. In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign. So Tiberius Caesar is the emperor at the time. Tiberius succeeded his stepfather Augustus. So Augustus Caesar was the previous uh, Caesar, the previous emperor. And now we get to the time of Tiberius Caesar. So he's the Roman emperor from AD 14 to AD 37. So that gives us uh, an approximate window of of Jesus' ministry, AD 14 to AD 37. And we're going to get some more information here soon. 
Now, during this period under Tiberius Caesar, Roman-Jewish relations were actually pretty good. The Romans and the Jews got along quite well. It's only later that things start to deteriorate. Now, the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign. Now, they did count years differently back then because they would often include sort of half a year as one year. So the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign would have to be somewhere between AD 27 and AD 29. So that's the approximate window when John the Baptist is doing ministry and when Jesus starts doing his ministry sometime between AD 27 and AD 29. And it says when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. So Pontius Pilate is the governor or the procurator in the region of Judea. In AD 6, that was under the Emperor Caesar Augustus, he placed Judea, the southern part of Israel, under the direct rule of a Roman governor. So, in the time of Jesus, Pilate is that governor or procurator. In fact, he's governor over Judea, Idumea, and Samaria. So, um, Pilate has control of the whole southern part of Israel, basically, from AD 26 to AD 36. So, it's Pontius Pilate's job to oversee that part of the Roman Empire and to keep the peace. He works for the emperor. Pontius Pilate probably wouldn't be in uh, Israel a whole lot of the time, actually. He'd probably be at his own personal residence uh, in Caesarea Maritima on the Mediterranean Sea, but he would come to Jerusalem for important Jewish events. Now, historical sources tell us that Pilate was actually quite a harsh tyrant, And we talk more about Pontius Pilate in our exegesis of the trial before Pilate. So when Jesus meets Pilate face to face, we'll get into the details of Pontius Pilate a bit more. Now, although the Romans had complete control of Judea and the southern part of Israel, there's actually a northern part of Israel, particularly the region of Galilee, that is not under direct Roman control. If you look at a map of Israel, which is actually very useful for things like this, there's a northern part which is not under Pontius Pilate's control. So they actually allowed Jewish rulers to govern the country areas in Israel. So the Romans had control of the the main city, Jerusalem, in the region of Judea. So they had control of that area. But the country regions, they allowed Jewish leaders to have control of, even though they were still part of the Roman Empire. So now we're introduced to Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee. So he's the ruler of Galilee, one of the northern regions of Israel. This is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great. So after Herod the Great died, around the time of uh, Jesus' birth, Herod Antipas governed, uh, governed Galilee, as well as Perea. So he actually governs the northern part of Israel and the southeastern part of Israel. They kind of gave him two little blocks of Israel. And we know that Herod Antipas reigned from 1 BC, around about, until AD 39. So he reigned for 40 years. He had a long reign. We're going to see a lot more of Herod Antipas during Luke's gospel. He actually becomes one of the key players as the gospel goes on. So Luke now introduces us to someone else, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the lands of Iterea and Trachonitis. So again, after Herod the Great died, uh, Herod the Great's land was split up amongst uh, Herod's sons. One of them was Herod Antipas we've just talked about, but another one of Herod the Great's sons is what's called Herod Philip. And he governed the regions northeast of Galilee. And technically, they're not usually considered to be part of Israel at this time. So, Iterea and Trachonitis, sort of in the northeastern direction. That was Herod Philip's territory. 
And then Luke introduces us to someone else, Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. We don't know much about Lysanias. He isn't referred to in any other historical sources, except he governed the territory northwest of Damascus and called Abilene. So most maps of Israel don't have uh, Abilene on there because it's way northwest of Damascus. So it's pretty much outside the boundary of Israel. So Luke here seems to have included the rulers of the areas of his audience that he's writing to. So apparently some of his audience lives in Iterea and Trachonitis, therefore he wants them to know about Herod Philip, and apparently some of them live in Lysanias as well, which is northwest of Damascus. So Luke is trying to cover all of his bases here when he mentions all of the relevant rulers in this area of the world. Then he mentions in verse 2, during the pontificate of Annas and Caiaphas. Another translation there of pontificate is high priesthood. So, there are two high priests listed here, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas was actually the reigning high priest from AD 18 to AD 36. So, technically, he's the high priest for these 18 years. But Annas used to be the high priest from AD 6 to AD 15. He was deposed by the Romans. So, the Jews didn't get rid of Annas. The Romans got rid of Annas in AD 15. And the Romans installed someone else. But Annas continued to have considerable influence. In fact, five of Annas' sons would be high priest after Annas, as well as his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So Annas had a big impact on the Jewish high priesthood at the time. And the Jewish high priesthood was basically the person who was the highest ranking Jew in the world, the high priest. So very, very important position. So there's... High priest Caiaphas was officially the high priest, however... Annas, even though he was deposed, was still alive at this time. So he was considered to be the real high priest in the eyes of many of the Jews at the time. So many Jews believed that Annas was technically still the rightful high priest, the rightful head of Israel. According to the laws of the Torah, Annas was actually still the high priest. It was just that the Romans had gotten rid of him politically. So in the Jewish mind, there was actually two high priests at once from AD 6 to AD 36, there was two high priests. There was Annas and whoever else happened to be the high priest at the time. And at the time of Jesus' ministry, that was Caiaphas. So Luke gets it it correct here when he says there are two high priests. He says during this time period, and he's just laid out the time period for us by referencing all these individuals, the word of God came. Now that language is very similar to language that's used in the Old Testament when a prophet receives a message or a vision. So if you look at the very start of Jeremiah's gospel and the very start of Ezekiel's gospel, they all start with this phrase, the word of God came to me. Well, here John the Baptist is being presented as a prophet. The word of God came to John the Baptist. He's presented as the last and the greatest prophet. And that's something that comes up later in the gospels as well. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And Luke here calls him John, son of Zechariah. So John the Baptist's backstory has already been narrated. Luke has already told us about Zechariah and the birth of John the Baptist. He says to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So according to the end of chapter one, that is where John the Baptist spent his time. That's where he spent his life, in the wilderness. So it seems that one of the reasons that John the Baptist was in the wilderness was actually to fulfill a prophecy of Isaiah, as we'll see This prophecy of Isaiah that we'll look at mentions uh, being in the wilderness, preparing the way of God in the wilderness. And that's exactly what John the Baptist does. 
The wilderness in Jewish thinking was typically the place of testing and repentance. If you think about the wandering in the wilderness in the book of Numbers, in the Jewish mind, the wilderness had come to represent testing and repentance. The actual wilderness where he lives, probably more of a desert region really, is north of the Dead Sea. If you look at a map of Israel at this time, he was operating on the border between Judea and Perea, and it's very much a desert area. The main area or the main town that he would have preached at is called Bethany beyond the Jordan. We learn that from the other Gospels. And historians have now found the site where he did baptize people at Bethany beyond the Jordan. And you can go and see today the place where Jesus was apparently baptized. So it's quite amazing that all of this has been historically verified. So John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. And we know that from the other Gospels, he baptizes in the river Jordan. And the Jews, for the Jews, the River Jordan was a very, very powerful symbol. It was the site of many healings and victories in the Old Testament. If you look at Joshua chapter 3, the River Jordan is very prominent there, and also in 2 Kings chapter 5. So John the Baptist deliberately picked the River Jordan as the place of his ministry. By the time of Jesus, the River Jordan had come to be a powerful symbol of hope and new life. So by John the Baptist calling people to come through the wilderness to be baptized in the Jordan. John was probably deliberately getting the people to reenact the Exodus story in order to, because John the Baptist has some insight as as to what's going to happen. He's preparing the people for the final Exodus from sin. He knows that the Messiah is coming. He knows that the Messiah is going to save them from sin. So he's getting the people to deliberately reenact the Exodus story to get them ready for the great Exodus from sin that they're going to experience. So it's kind of like what he's getting them to do is kind of recommitting to the covenant before the Messiah comes and brings the covenant to its fullness. The River Jordan is actually quite a large river, so it's suitable for baptizing uh, a whole lot of people. Interestingly, the site where John the Baptist does his work is very close to Qumran, and that's where the Essenes lived who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, apparently. Many scholars have pointed out there might be some parallels between John the Baptist and the Essenes. Many of John the Baptist's features, particularly his clothing and his message, the things that he says, very, very similar to what the Essenes say. We have a lot of the writings from the Essenes and they say very similar things to John the Baptist at the same time that he's saying them. So some uh, scholars have actually proposed that John himself was an Essene. He lived in Qumran And then maybe he later left the community. And that's quite a compelling theory. There's a lot of evidence for that, actually. Or it certainly seems to be the case that John the Baptist would have had some interaction with them. Because the ideas, and in fact, some of the phrases he uses, for example, calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers, is exactly what the Essenes call them as well. So it seems like they did have a lot in common. Verse 3, John went through the whole Jordan district. So this is an important phrase. Often we get the picture that John the Baptist just stayed in one place. He baptized at exactly the same place all the time at Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now, certainly that's where his main baptism site was, and that's where Jesus was baptized. But John the Baptist is a prophet, so he moves up and down the River Jordan. He travels all throughout this entire wilderness area. And in fact, that's how he gets in trouble with Herod, because apparently at some point he preaches... uh, at a spot where Herod or Herod's servants can hear him. So Judea is on the western side of the Jordan River, and Perea is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Both sides of them are wilderness. John the Baptist moves through this entire wilderness area, preaching his message. Luke says he proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, baptism was actually a common practice already amongst the Jews. The word baptizo in Greek just means to immerse. And the Jews did already have a variety of ritual cleansings by water. And we see some of these come up in the Gospels, particularly the Essenes. The Essenes had a lot of interesting baptism rituals. But the key difference here, or one of the key differences with John the Baptist's baptism, is it's only supposed to be done once, whereas the common Jewish baptisms at the time had to be done repeatedly. And the most important difference, the most distinct thing about John's baptism, it wasn't that he baptised, lots of Jews were familiar with baptism. What was unique about John's baptism was that it involved repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was John the Baptist's big emphasis not dealing with ritual impurities to get ready for eating food like some of the other Jews did. No, John the Baptist's baptism is about repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the Greek word here for repentance is metanoia, which means a complete change of mind. It means turning around and going in the other direction. So John's message is, if you want to be baptized, if you want to recommit to the covenant, if you want to get ready for the Messiah, you need to have a complete change of heart and completely turn away from your sins. So John's message is basically this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist knows that the Messiah is coming and that the kingdom of God is coming. He has some information from God that tells him that these things are coming. The Jewish belief, and this is interesting, and we need to keep in mind the theological background here. The Jewish belief at the time was that the Jews were in a sense still in exile. Although they'd returned to the land, In their mind, they were still not fully returned to the land. They were still in exile due to having committed sins under the old covenant. They felt that they were still under God's covenant punishment. And in a sense, they're actually correct. So the Jews at the time looked forward to the day of a new exodus. And they believed that when the new exodus happened, the kingdom of God would come and their sins would be forgiven. That was how they understood the kingdom of God to be, was this amazing immediate day when God would vindicate them, forgive all their sins, and bring in the kingdom. That was something they were looking forward to. The problem is that many of the Jews had false ideas about what exactly the kingdom of God would be like. They had the correct view that the Messiah would bring in the kingdom of God, and that it would involve forgiveness of sins, but what they thought the kingdom itself would look like was not correct. In particular, the Jews believed that they would automatically be granted entrance to the kingdom just because they were Jews and just because they're under the old covenant. That was sort of their belief at the time. So John tells them, actually, they need to repent if they want to be part of the kingdom. And that comes out pretty clearly in John's preaching, as we'll see. He's going to say things like, do you believe that because you are the sons of Abraham, you'll get into the kingdom? And he completely cuts them down on that. He says, no, if you want to get into the kingdom, you need to repent. That's actually very similar to John uh, to Jesus' own message. Repent if you want to get into the kingdom of God. And then Luke tells us, he's going to quote here from Isaiah, as it is written in the book of the sayings of the prophet Isaiah. So Luke here is going to quote from Isaiah chapter 40. And in the context of Isaiah's prophecy originally, it referred to getting the Jews ready for the coming of the Lord. And so in that context, he's talking about God. When Isaiah gives this prophecy, he's he's talking about getting the Jews ready for God. Basically, he's telling them that God is coming to bring them out of exile. That's what this particular prophecy is all about. He's telling the Jews, look, God is coming soon to redeem you, to bring you out of exile. By the time of Jesus, this very passage, Isaiah 40, had come to be seen, and particularly by the Essenes, as connected to the redemption 
of Israel from their covenant punishment. So they believed that Isaiah chapter 40 would have a greater fulfillment at the time that the kingdom of God came and when the Messiah basically would bring in the new covenant. That was how the Jews at the time thought of Isaiah 40. So it's significant that Luke and all, in fact, all four gospel writers quote this in connection with John the Baptist. They see it as being fulfilled. And here's the quote, a voice cries in the wilderness. So let's think about this phrase, a voice cries in the wilderness. Now that's a metaphor when Isaiah gives it. It's a metaphor which carries this idea of a message being conveyed to the people. Luke tells his readers that this is a prophecy that actually finds its final fulfillment in John, who literally did cry out in the wilderness. Prepare a way for the Lord, make his paths straight. So in the time of Isaiah, when this prophecy was first given, if they knew that a king was coming to town, they would literally prepare the road. They would make the road smoother. They would tidy everything up for the arrival of the king. And they also saw God as a king in the Old Testament. So in Isaiah's time, Isaiah is telling the people that they need to repent and get their lives sorted before God comes to bring them out of exile. That's the message. He's telling them, get themselves ready uh, before God comes. Luke here indicates that this message finds its final fulfillment in John, who is telling the Jews how to prepare the way for the arrival of the Messiah, who is going to come to bring them out of their ultimate exile from sin. So from this, it's actually clear, often we don't think about this, but it's clear that the gospel authors understood the coming of Jesus to be the coming of God himself. Clearly in the original context of Isaiah 40, it's about the coming of God. But now Luke says this is fulfilled when John the Baptist talks about the coming of Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. This is a subtle hint that the gospel authors understood Jesus to be God in human flesh. The next two verses from Isaiah 40, Luke is going to keep quoting here from Isaiah 40, but only Luke includes these two verses. None of the other gospel authors continue the the quote from Isaiah past this point, but Luke does. He gives us two more verses from Isaiah 40. Every valley will be filled in, Every mountain and hill be laid low, winding ways will be straightened, and rough roads will be made smooth. So this is from Isaiah 40. This could have a couple of different meanings in Luke's mind. Maybe this is fulfilled in the sense that the humble will be exalted in the kingdom. Every mountain and hill will be laid low, so God will level the playing field. Maybe that's what's meant. Maybe Luke is continuing his... uh, It's more likely, though, that Luke is continuing to think about John the Baptist particularly the idea that John the Baptist is preparing the land and the people, the Jewish people, for the Messiah. That's probably the idea here. Every mountain and hill will be laid low, getting the land and the people ready for the coming of the King Jesus. Verse 6, Luke finishes the quote here from Isaiah 40, And all mankind shall see the salvation of God. What it says there literally is, All flesh shall see the salvation of God. One of Luke's key themes is that the kingdom of God is, is open to all people, not just Jews. And that certainly comes through in this quote, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So that would explain why Luke includes the end of this quote here from Isaiah 40, whereas the other gospel authors don't stress that as much. Now, there's actually a lot going on here in this Isaiah 40 passage, which you could talk about. When the Jews in the time of Jesus quoted a line from a prophet, they were often thinking of the entire context of that whole section of the prophet. And that certainly seems to be the case here. Isaiah 40 is very rich with metaphors and imagery about the Messiah, about the new creation. In fact, this passage from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, is actually the beginning 
of a whole new section in Isaiah. And so by quoting this, and this, now I'm going to quote here from the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible, by quoting Isaiah chapter 40, Luke cues an entire symphony of biblical promises to be fulfilled by the Lord. He will rescue the poor and the oppressed, pour out the spirit, restore Israel, come to Jerusalem as king, destroy his enemies, and show mercy to his children. At the summit of this stands the messianic servant, whose mission is to bless the nations and atone for sin. All of this is fulfilled by Jesus. So all those things listed there, coming to Jerusalem as king, atoning for sin, restoring Israel, all of that is listed in the cent- in the central section of the book of Isaiah. So the fact that Luke and the other gospel authors quote from the beginning of that new section in Isaiah basically signals to the readers that this whole section of Isaiah about the new creation is beginning in the time of John the Baptist. So that's the end of verse 6. Now verses 7 to 9 is when we get to hear some of John the Baptist's really strong preaching when he says things like, you brood of vipers, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, that strong preaching from John the Baptist is actually never read in the lectionary, so you never get to hear uh, the strong language there from John the Baptist. So we're going to cover that as a bonus episode of the podcast. If you want to get access to the next section of uh, Luke chapter 3, you can get to that through the Patreon page, and there is a link to that in the episode description. We'll finish today with one short Uh, paragraph from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Paragraph 535 is about the baptism of Jesus. Jesus' public life begins with his baptism by John in the Jordan. John preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's it. So I hope you've learned something new for today. And if you have, please share this podcast with others so that the podcast can continue to grow. Thank you so much for your support of the ministry. And we'll see you again tomorrow. Thank you.